I'm a strong believer that when you make something together, like art, it has the possibility to bring you together in a way that you never imagined. And so for many of them, having that experience and feeling even uncomfortable in that space allowed them to understand to a certain degree what it feels like to be a Black woman in that space and the inappropriateness of the conversation they were having about me. What's going on, y'all? You have just tuned in to the Black Shutter Podcast. On this show, I invite Black photographers, filmmakers, editors, and creative business folks to discuss their experiences and share their wisdom. You will hear about their work, their challenges, and their inspirations. My name is Idris Talib Solomon, a creative director, photographer, and filmmaker based in Brooklyn, New York. So if you dig photography and you love the culture, keep your mind open and your headphones locked. This is the Black Shutter Podcast. As human beings, we all experience trauma. No one is immune. As black people in the United States, we experience violence at an overwhelming rate. Some of us respond with anger or fear. Some fall into states of hopelessness. But our guest today learned how to cope with pain through her art. She discovered the power of collaboration as a way to collectively heal and go through the pain together. Based in North Carolina, she is an artist, teacher, and curator. She uses photography and video to reveal the often overlooked and unappreciated experiences unique to people of color. Her work has been featured in New York Times, NBC, BET, Huffington Post, National Geographic, and so many others. She has also released her first monograph, Performance Review, which brings together work over a 10-year period that highlights the realities and challenges for women of color in the corporate workplace. India Bill, welcome to the Black Shutter Podcast. How are you feeling out there, sis? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. You know, as good as you can be. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Yeah, you know, this quarantine got people in different types of... um moods and headspaces how are you how are you dealing with everything right now uh i think it's like it's one of those things where you just kind of take it day by day Uh right like um i have to figure out ways to stay motivated and uh and focused um especially as a um as an artist um and so so i find myself you know um whether it's listening to new music or you know um I don't know. I just watched uh, uh, Mama Rainey's Black Bottom uh. <laughs> yesterday, you know. So just, I guess, finding myself, uh, trying to surround myself with good stuff, good art, positive energy, um, to stay motivated in a time where it's hard. It really is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but you said something interesting, um, especially as an artist, right? We we have to find different sources of motivation and inspiration, and in whatever, like the, the the cool thing about art is whatever emotion that we're going through, we can find a way to express ourselves in that emotion. So if we're happy, we can express, we can create something that, you know, shows that that happiness. When we're sad or when we're confused, we can do something that conveys that as well. So I think artists are always sort of at an advantage when it comes to dealing with all the different things that the world throws at us because we can kind of take those, you know, all of those that mixture of emotions and then 
create something tangible and like release those emotions into you know our art. So it's good to hear that you're uh, finding ways to cope. Yeah. So um, tell us where are you calling from? Uh, I'm in North Carolina. Yeah. So I'm down here in the South. The weather's beautiful today too, by the way. It's like 60 degrees outside. Yeah. Man, we just got hit with a crazy snowstorm. And in New York, when snow hits, like snow is great for like the first day because it's like nice and clean and soft and you can like make snowballs. And then like two <laughs> or three days after, it starts turning to these like gray, muddy mounds that just don't disappear for like weeks. And cars, yeah. cars are like parked slanted and sideways. And it's crazy. It's crazy. But uh, good to hear you got good weather. Um, are you from North Carolina originally? Yeah, yeah. So born and raised, I came back home. Like, and I, I lived in New Haven, Connecticut, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I don't miss that at all. <laughs> like, not even a little bit. And my husband's from New York, so yeah. When I, I know I love New York, but the weather, the yep. winters, yeah, it's a whole nother ball game. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> so, um, we did you go to school in North Carolina as well? I did. So I went to, uh, as far as uh, undergrad, I went to NC State first, and then I transferred and went to UNC Chapel Hill. Uh -huh. So um, I tell people my veins are like purple, like if you mix red and blue. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's hard to be, I guess, if you start, especially as a freshman or sophomore going to your school, you kind of create a love for it at NC State. And then I ended up at Carolina later on. So, yeah. Is NC State a HBCU? No, so uh, North Carolina State University is actually the, one of the first uh, public schools in the country, um, but I worked at HBCU, so uh, for the past six years, I was working at Winston-Salem State University, which is at HBCU, and uh, North Carolina actually has the most HBCUs in the nation in our state. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, you know, it's funny. I looked at a list of HBCUs, and I'm just like, wow, there are so many that I, I don't know. I never knew the names of, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> and um, I thought that's why I thought NC State might have been one. Oh yeah, no, 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 uh, uh, uh. So yeah. what, what, what did you study at NC State and at um, in North Carolina? What was it, the Chapel, uh, Chapel Hill? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, NC State, I didn't have a major, really. Like, I wanted to do graphic design, I guess, but at the time, I, I didn't, actually didn't get accepted. So uh, when I went to college, I'd never taken an art class in my life, you know, other than, like, maybe an intro in high school or something like that. And uh, and so at the time, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, right? Um, and I guess around, like, my sophomore year, when you had to kind of declare what your major's going to be, uh -huh. I was just like, well, you know, I love art. It's kind of like breathing, but I'd never actually taken any kind of formal classes. And so um, I, I ended up transferring to uh, UNC Chapel Hill, which had the best, at the time, art history um, and, and maybe even art program in the state. And that's where I took, um, uh, I started taking like my, my first photography class and my first um, real art classes were in college my junior year. So that is really interesting because I feel like most people who are creative, you know, had some sort of sign growing up, had some sort of like we're doing something creative, you know, um, as a child or whatever. Um, and it sounds like you discovered that you wanted to be an artist in college. 
Well, I w- you know, the thing is, um, uh, you know, when I think about being an, uh, being an artist, that's kind of like saying you are going to pursue this as a career, right? Okay. Um, I always had a love for the arts, um, you know, so that was young when I was like little, you know, and, uh, and even in high school, um, you know, the first person I ever loved was shot and killed in high school. And so even during this kind of like traumatic time, I I was like a sophomore in high school. So becoming going to my junior year and, um, I talked to him on the phone. We were supposed to go to the movies. We didn't go. He went to a party. He died in the parking lot. Right. Um, and so for me, art was just a way for me to deal with emotional trauma and pain, you know? So I was going through, um, I guess at that time, just kind of trying to figure out and cope with the loss of someone that I loved. And I used art as a way to kind of deal with that. So I was painting and taking pictures and, and uh, you know, and drawing and writing. But for me, it was not, I wasn't, I didn't define myself as like an artist. I was just like, oh, you know, this is a way for me to deal with what I'm going through. And it felt good, right? It felt, I felt alive when I was painting. Um, in a way that I didn't feel alive doing anything else. So I just painted a lot. But even then, I never looked at myself as an artist because I'd never been like formally trained, right? So uh-huh. this was just a way for me to deal with my own my own um, emotions and experiences. And not until I got to college, um, I, I realized nothing was really making me happy. You know, and I think when you lose someone so young, um, you just realize that life is short and it'll be over before it ever started. And so at that point, I said, you know what? I'm just going to do art (laughs) because it's the only thing that I do that makes me feel alive. There are no rules. There's no restrictions. There's no one telling me what to do. Like, I can just do what I want. And, and, uh, you know, I didn't know any artists at the time. Uh, You know, I'm a hip-hop head. (laughs) So uh, Jay-Z will say, you know, I can't base what I'm going to be off what everybody isn't. Uh-huh. They don't listen. So this idea that, you know, people around him were not rappers. So how could they tell him that he's not, he couldn't be a rapper? Yeah. Well, nobody around me was an artist, right? So they couldn't tell me I can't do it, right? Because they clearly hadn't done it themselves. And uh-huh. so at that point, it was kind of no turning back. Yeah. So you know that a lot of, especially in photography, um, but just a lot of black art, you know, is revolves around pain. Now there's a lot more. We're starting to see a turnaround in you know black joy, right? Mm-hmm. But your introduction to art, sort of as therapy, when your 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 first love was was killed, you know, you started to turn to art as a way to cope. Was the art that you were creating was it rooted in sadness? And if so, for how long? When did and did it ever like shift around to doing something that like being a form of expression that that conveyed all the different emotions? Yeah, uh, I don't think it was rooted so much in sadness as much as it was rooted in injustice, mm-hmm. right? So I think for me, um, you know, like when Sean died, and the the um, the newspaper did a, a cover cover on you know the shooting. They kind of presented him as this kind of criminal, right? Uh, where I knew he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? He was a lover of art. He was a lover of music. He was a, he loved me, right? And so from that moment, um, I wanted to create paintings, um, even at this young age, um, photographs that spoke to 
the life of individuals before they die, you know? Like, I found that there just wasn't the, the, the story that was used to describe him, this kind of newspaper article article didn't go into who he was as a person right it just kind of like talked about what happened at the scene and and alluded to the fact that he may have been in some kind of like i don't know criminal activity which really he was just the wrong place the wrong time he was at a party you know Mm -hmm. um and so so the thing so for me the paintings i was making at that time were really about um this idea of youth um, innocence and maybe even the absence of uh, of, a, of a narrative or story that really reflects contemporary experiences of young black people, specifically young black men. Mm-hmm. And so um, I wanted to tell those stories before tragedy, before pain. What what did that look like? And so a lot of that was you know around just kind of everyday love and aspirations and hopes and doubts and fears, um, those things that make us human. Um, so I don't think it was so much riddled in pain, um, but more so a reflection of what was not there when I read those articles, right? I wanted people to see that. So you wanted to paint a fair and balanced, you know, um, story of someone you knew. Yeah, exactly. Um, how much do you paint today? (laughs) I have two children, (laughs) one who's three and the other one's one. Uh, two children. So yeah, uh, not much. Uh, you know, and then, you know, an artist told me one time, um, Keanga Ford, who I love dearly, uh, at the time when I was trying to figure out whether I wanted to paint or do photography, she said, India, um, you know, you, you know, you have to land on a lily pad. Like we, we jump from one lily pad to another lily pad, but until you land on one lily pad and, you know, she went, she's like, you know, just land on one, then you can always jump to another one. And so um, at that point, and this was early, early in my career, I said, you know, I'm going to focus on this photography thing, right. Uh, and see where that leads me. And, and hopefully I'll have another opportunity to paint. But for right now I'm focusing on, uh, I guess, one medium and maybe one day those two mediums will, you know, I don't know, they'll merge. Right. But right now, um, I guess photography has been my, my main focus for a long time now. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. You know, um, you know, I have a graphic design background and I picked up photography after that. And it's not until recently that I'm starting to take some of my photography and then do use, use those images to do some design and like illustrative work with those photos. But it's, but I couldn't, I didn't want to try to go down both lanes at the same time because then I would just end up splitting my energy and splitting my efforts, you know? So that makes a lot of sense. Um, So, you know, growing up in in your family, how how were the arts put, you know, um, received in your family? What did your your parents feel about artists and and art as a career path? Uh, you know, so my mother, I, I call her my wildflower. She is an artist in her own right, right? And was always very supportive of um, of the work I made, um, whether it was the work I was, you know, painting. When I was painting, I was like painting in my mama's basement, right? <laughs> you know, uh, and so she would always, you know, just really uh, support it. Uh, in any way she could. Um, even she, she never knew what it would lead me, but she knew it brought me joy. And so for her, that was enough. You know, uh, my dad, I would say, is more practical <laughs> as most as most parents can be. Right. And he wanted me to be like a nurse, 
I can barely see my finger get pricked, let alone, <laughs> <laughs> let alone help somebody, yeah. you know. Uh, it takes a special person. So uh, I would say, you know, thank God for my mom. <laughs> you know? uh, she definitely, you know, when I told her I was going to school for art, she did, she was a little concerned, right? Like, what are you going to do with that? And I said, you know what? Um, you know, I'm not sure quite yet, but it'll work out the way it's supposed to. And she just had faith in that. You know, I tell people sometimes, you know, everybody can't see your vision, even your own family, even the people you love, right? But it's okay because it's your vision. Yeah. Um. And so, uh, and so that I just had to kind of walk in faith that it's going to work out the way it's supposed to. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, especially when it comes to, you know, being creative because. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, our our path can like change directions in a heartbeat. You know. So. Yeah. Um, no, definitely. <laughs> Definitely. All right. So, you know, in high school, you know, you, you witnessed this tragic loss of your first love and that sparked you to, to paint in order to paint, to, in order to literally paint a, 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 a much more clearer picture of who this person was. You get into college as an artist. When did you and decide to go towards art as a career? When did things shift towards photography? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a strong believer that you can't follow in someone's path and expect a different outcome, right? Mm -hmm. So I was looking at these artists that I love. So whether it is, I don't know, Daoud Bay or Henry Cartier-Bresson or James Van Der Zee or, um, you know, even other painters like Palmer Hayden and, and Archibald Motley and, you know, Alma Thomas. So these are all, you know, uh, a variety of artists, but uh, for me, it was something really beautiful and exciting about the work they were making, Roy de Garava, right? Like these these photographs that just told these stories. And so um, painting kept me in the studio where uh, photography allowed me to be in the world in a mm. way that, I, I, that 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 fed me um, differently. It was just a different kind of interaction. And uh, Diane Arbus uh, says that for her, the camera was her connection to the community, right? And for me, it was just that, like, I could talk about these stories uh, of, of, um, of Black men or even women or experiences in a painting, but in order to be in the community and build those relationships, well, you know, those relationships became more important to me than the photographs themselves. And essentially, that's what I was searching for, this way of telling other stories, but building those relationships in that same way. And so photography... Um, it gave me that, right? It gave me the opportunity to be in the community, to build relationships, to um, provide advice or insight or whatever. And so, you know, people called, you know, people call, they say subjects about their photographs. These are not subjects. These are my friends. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's different. So, um, so yeah, if that makes any sense. Uh, yeah, photography did that. It allowed me to... Um, it's just, I guess, as an artist, you you pick your medium, right? Which mm -hmm. one allows you to tell the story the best? And for my, for right now, for photographs, do just that. Yeah, you know, I think that the more I I, I get into this, I, I'm, I'm the more that I'm immersed in this world of photography, the more I'm, I realize that a good image really is based on the connection that the photographer has with the person that they're photographing or the people that oh, they're yeah. photographing or the community that they're photographing. You can tell when uh, an image is like surface level where somebody mm -hmm. just 
walked into this house, spent two minutes there, snap, 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 took a few pictures and bounced. Mm-hmm. Versus where uh, a situation where a photographer gets to know the person or or knows the person, has access to them, to their time, to their space, to their environment, but also has access to their emotions. And that person is willing to share those emotions with the photographer, and you see that expressed in the image. Is a, a big difference, you know. So um, I like that analogy that you know photography forces you to be out in the world, whereas painting keeps you sort of like in the studio. And it's, they're both different forms of expression, you know. Um, that's a really uh, I, I really like that analogy. Thanks. So when did you know? Photography was your thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, um, I guess as an artist, right? Um, we talk about mediums and figuring out the medium. Like I said, the relationships that I built um, over the years became more important than the actual photograph, right? The actual print. And so um, I realized, uh, I guess, oh, this is, you know, years, years ago that the photograph. Um, allowed me to, it was, it was like a collaboration, right? So collaborating with the person I'm photographing and, and telling these stories. And uh, I guess, I guess in, in grad school, in undergrad, um, when I was at UNC Chapel Hill, I took my first photography class under Jeff Whitestone, who is the, the director of photography now at Princeton University. And, um, and I was shooting large format, you know, you put the black hood over your head, you know, and I was actually in, uh, I was shooting in Durham, North Carolina. It was mostly Crips at that time. So it was a lot of, you know, it was a lot of gang activity happening in that area. But my grandmother grew up there. So I found myself um, in this community because my family had roots there, but the area had been kind of stigmatized as deviant based Mm -hmm. on the activity of just a small group of people. And so I was like, similar to the, the death of Sean, I was interested in telling a different story, right, of this neighborhood and community. And so um, I found myself photographing in Southside Durham, and I was shooting large format, and these guys, they didn't know what the hell, you know, like, what is this contraption, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's this tall girl with big red hair, and she's taking pictures in this community, and, and so soon the drug dealers are holding my film, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like you know... You know, they go get their hair cut or they get the baseball bat so the girls get their hair done. It was like, there's this girl, she'll take your picture and guess what? She'll come back and she'll give you one, right? And so I think at that moment, being in those communities, you know, making these prints and I was making them analog. So I'm like in the dark room making color. And I don't know if you've ever done that before, but it's definitely like, uh, you know, it's like a, it's a long process doing color in the dark, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was listening to what did Jay Z drop at that time? He was um oh man, dang, I can't think. It'll come back to me. I'll tell you. Blueprint. But you know, I, I guess huh? Blueprint. It was a blueprint. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> that shit it was blueprint. So you know, um, and that's where the quote came from. The blueprint that I said earlier. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so I was I was listening to you know you find yourself in these spaces listening to this music making this work, and um, and all of it just felt real. You know, um, I guess at that moment, I, you know, physically making the photograph in the dark, going and using film, like starting it, like I had never used Photoshop, not until grad school. Um, so doing this work, it just felt, it had that kind of labor experience, like being a painter, right? Um, but it was photography. And it was something about that that was just so beautiful um, at that moment. 
and uh, and the and the impact of like being able to shoot you one day, wait a couple of I don't know like a week, get my prints back, scan them, you know, make you know do all this work and uh, bring a print back to um, I guess I wasn't scanning then, but bring a print back to somebody and they can have it and own it and it's theirs. Like something in that just felt so real. Um, yeah. So I guess that was it. Long story short. <laughs> no, and that's great. And um, I, I wish I want you to walk us through the steps of bringing this huge analog camera into the hood, <laughs> where you know you might be in the middle of you know you two different gangs, and being able to <laughs> speak to folks and get them to trust you to take their picture because. A, a lot of times in the black community, being photographed is like, it's 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 hard to get someone's trust, even if you are a black photographer. You know what I'm saying? So, oh, yeah. can you walk us through the steps of how you were able to like gain the trust of this particular community? Oh, for sure. You know, it just didn't happen to be in the neighborhood. My grandmother lived in the neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother's house is over a hundred years old, so they've been there for for a very, very, very long time, and that's where she had her twelve children as well. And so um, this neighborhood of Durham that I'm talking about was once considered the kind of Harlem Renaissance of the South. Uh, black businesses were thriving. People were, you know, moving and shaking. And, and that was the area to be in. Um, like many communities across the United States, things changed. And so the area became kind of stigmatized, like I said, as deviant because of gang violence. Uh, my aunt, who lived up the street from my grandmother, um, she has like, I don't know, five bullet holes in her house, right? Um, and uh, and she's a believer, a woman who walks in faith and says she's not moving. Um, you know, one one time a bullet came through her house, and the only reason she's alive is because the phone rang. And so um, there was something about the history of that community and uh, and the way it had changed over the years that was just important. And so, you know, I got a lot of no's, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, going out there taking this, pic, you know, with this big contraption. And if people don't know about four by fives, it's a big, it's a heavy camera, okay? Like, it's not light. And you have your film and there's just, you know, it's a different kind of experience. And uh, and so people were intrigued as well. So I got some no's, I got some hell no's, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, but eventually, it always just takes one person to say yes. You know, um, I'm better with stories. I'll tell you a short story. Uh, so this guy was standing in the corner, maybe not doing the most positive of things, right? And I was like, can I take your picture? And he's like, no. And I'm like, come on, man, can I take your picture? And he's like, hell no. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Something big is about to happen, and you're going to miss out on it. I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> like, no idea. But I was like, something big is about to happen, and you are going to miss out, period. And he's like... All right, girl, just take the picture. <laughs> take the damn picture, right? So, so I'm like, okay, thank you. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I put my black hood over my head and like standing there and I take this picture. And then I came back, I don't know, three days later, he was in the same spot. And I was like, hey, you know, here's your print. You know, in a community where people are constantly taking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first time that someone had given something back. Yeah. And so I really do think that, um, and I wasn't giving little four by fives, right? I was giving like, uh, you know, 11 by 14, eight by 10, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, and people were blown away. They're like, damn, this is actually pretty good, <laughs> you know? 
and I can put this over my house, right? And so word spread that there's this tall, light-skinned chick with a big camera, who has a big red fro, who will take your picture, and she'll give you one. And uh, for three years, I photographed that community. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it, all it takes is one person to to see to see your vision in some way, even if they're reluctant, right? And um, and in that moment, uh, you know, they it, you, there was there was trust, you know. It um, takes tenacity on your part as well, right, to keep going oh, back yeah. there, carrying this. You were getting your steps in, for sure, right? Yeah, exactly. You got to be cool with no, you know what I'm saying? Like, as my mom would say, people put their pants on just like you do, one leg after the other. There's no reason to be intimidated. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there were there were levels of uh, uncertainty, for sure, right? Like, it's not, I wasn't photographing in the most, it wasn't like, it wasn't, you know, questionable, depending on, like, what was happening. But I, there was something I wanted to say, and I knew it was important. And I knew maybe the people in the community didn't see it right away or even understand it for that matter. But that wasn't that wasn't my motivator, right? My motivator was something totally different. And uh, and it worked out. Does, did that project have a name? Did it have a title? Uh, so that's called The Life We Live. Um, and, and I actually did a few sequences of it. So that's The Life We Live, which is basically the Haytown neighborhood, which is the name of the neighborhood I photographed in, in uh, Southside Durham. And then I did uh, a series in Europe called The Life We Live, um, which was mostly Senegalese immigrants mm. um, in Italy. And uh, and that's called La Vita Che Viviamo, which is The Life We Live in Italian. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, so there's a few, there's a, there are a few versions. I, and also in New Haven, when I was living there, I did The Life We Live. So mostly around Black men um, between the ages of 19 and 22, uh, similar ages to my love. Uh, Sean and uh, photographing their life before they die. I'm not saying I want them to die, but there's a possibility it might happen. So, what does your life look like before that? So yeah, yeah so there's a few versions a, of the life we live. <laughs> yeah, that's such a tender age for um for mm -hmm. young black men. You know, like mm -hmm. go any direction, and sometimes it's by the choices that we make or just by circumstances of our environment. You know, or, or circumstances of being black. You know, oh, 100%. Um, Definitely. So when you start these projects, I'm always interested to 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 um, get into the brain of of artists before they start a project. Like, how did that particular project come about? The life, the life we live. The life we live. Yeah, or La Vita Che Viviamo. Mm -hmm. I, um, I can't I can't say that one, so I'm gonna just say <laughs> the life we live. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where I don't think as a as a maker, you have a clear idea of what what the end goal is going to be. I always say even when I start a painting, right, it's like starting a painting, you have this blank canvas and mm -hmm. you come in with this initial idea and you have to be kind of fluid like the paint. Right. And know that this idea is going to be better than you thought it was going to be. But you have to be open to the change in the process. And so uh, initially, I just wanted to I, I went in with the intent of telling a different story. Right. Like my grandmother's neighborhood had a certain um, had a certain stigma placed on it. And I wanted to tell a different story. Um, about that community, about the families, the children, the you know, and over the three-year period, um, that story evolved and changed, and I found that I was gravitating, well, most of the people that were hanging out, that were in the community, that were, you know, on the street at the time were mostly men, 
And so I found myself spending more time with the men and I was photographing these young men, um, you know, during these um, years. And I guess um, from that, you know, you start thinking about what's your message behind these photographs. And I realized that this was a way for me to kind of deal with the death of Sean. You know, you kind of suppress, suppress your feelings or, you know, like you said, sometimes your artwork speaks to those experiences. And so it helped, it helped me understand why I was um, uh, focusing primarily on men at the time. And uh, so then the same thing happened when I was in Italy and the same thing happened when I was living in New Haven. Um, and so, like I said, there's, there's three different, I guess, three different chapters to very similar stories in different places, whether it's an international story of young black men coming from Senegal to Italy with no sense of the language or the culture or documentation or anything like that, or the young black men in New Haven, Connecticut, um, which is considered number three in violent crime in the United States, right? And these communities that are, that are you know, that have so much pain, um, and how do you tell a different story in those areas? So, uh, so I guess in many ways, it was like a blank canvas. And, uh, and that, you know, the idea evolved over the years. And how would you say that, you know, through your painting and through these um, projects, the way we live, the different versions of that project. Like, how would you say you've resolved, you know, the situation that happened with Sean when you were younger? You know, it's interesting. I actually tabled that. So, I, you know, I worked on, you know, this is the thing about, I tell my, my students, you know, I, when I was at the university, I was a professor. I was like, you're going to work on this for a semester. And like, a semester? You know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, what? So, uh, so, you know, I worked on this, this, these series for about maybe, I don't know, six years. And then I tabled it, meaning I just kind of put it aside um, to focus on performance review. Mm -hmm. And the work I was kind of, and, and at that time in my life was just really interesting. I was working on these series and then I myself was going through my own kind of um, uncertainty in grad school and, uh, and feeling like the work I was making wasn't really, um, the photographs weren't translating my message the way I wanted it to be during these critiques I was having during, during grad school. And so I ended up turning the camera myself for the first time, which I had never done that before. And so I don't know if the experiences with Sean have been fully resolved yet. Mm. Um, you know, during this time of the pandemic, I'm really thinking about, you know, works that I haven't finished and messages and things I really want to say. And so that's one of the bodies of work that I'm actually considering at this point, revisiting and just trying to see which one would best, um, would best, would best work. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm I'm glad you just mentioned performance review because I wanted to start getting getting into some of that work that you've done. Um, so the first time that I was introduced to you and your work was in 2016 at the Eddie Adams workshop. I was a student that year, and you know, Eddie Adams workshop for those who don't know is a workshop that is primarily for photojournalists and documentary photographers. Every once in a while, a really strong portrait photographer will um, get into the mix or a fine art photographer will begin into the mix. And Andy, when you, when you gave your presentation, yours was a mixture of video. And, and in that video, the camera was turned on you. And it was like a mixture of uh, spoken word. It was video. It was a personal story. And I remember sitting there 
feeling like, how did she do this, right? Like, <laughs> and it wasn't, it, and, and the thing about it, right? It wasn't that it was like super technical, like you had a bunch of lighting and all, but it was like, how did you put your life on the, in the lens in a way that felt so personal that made me think like, I know this person and photography is not just about going out and capturing the moment, like current events, like you can use it for so many other, other things. But seeing your presentation, I felt like I've never ever had a project that felt as personal. And I'm always intrigued by people who are able to put their life into their work that way, that seamlessly, you know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, um, so the first project I saw you put up, I think, was Office Scene, and yeah. <laughs> and and that was a you know that 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 project opens up with, um, this is the one with with is focused on your mouth, right? And your, yeah. your right. So it's fo- yeah. like she has bright red lipstick, and it's it's only her lips in the frame, and she's she's reading something, and that's all you hear as an introduction. Um, but I want you to tell us a little bit more about this project, you know, because um, I, I, I won't be able to do it justice. <laughs> uh, so office scene in particular? Yes. You want to talk about that? Uh, so, um, so when I was a graduate student at Yale University, specifically Yale School of Art, um, I got a job in IT. And, uh, and, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about codes and websites, but it paid the most money at the time. And as a student, I was like, you know what? I am confident I can learn this, you know? (laughs) For this price, uh, I'll learn it. For this price, I'll learn it. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, interesting enough, and just to give a little context, at the time, I was the only black person in photography at the School of Art. Now, Yale School of Art is one of the top art schools in the nation if not the world, right? And this photography program is one of the best of the best. So you have a lot of major artists who've come out of this program. Um, Out of thousands of applicants, they're only going to accept nine students, um, and that's first year and second year. And so out of the first year and second years, I was the only Black person, Uh right? Then I started working in IT, and I was also the only um, Black person on my team, you know? And so I, I walked, you know, into this like sea of cubicles and it's mostly men, mostly white men. And there were only a few black people on the floor. Right. And so um, I talk about W.E.B. Du Bois and his idea of double consciousness. Right. And I felt like I was experiencing that, um, you know, being in both spaces, whether it's a school of art or whether it's um, an IT. And double consciousness really talks about this idea of being mediators between these two worlds. You know, me coming from the South and North Carolina finding myself in these ivy towers, you know, in a place where I didn't even know, right? Um, and then going to this prestigious school, this Ivy League, and uh, and working in IT, I just found myself kind of alone uh, in many ways, uncertain, um, a little depressed, uh, just because I felt like my cultural identity was, was um, you know, sometimes it wasn't as far as being seen, I wasn't really being seen or heard in many ways. And so... Um, so that was the first time I decided to turn the camera on myself. So as far as officing, a rumor started at my job that the my white male colleagues were fascinated with my afro uh, so much that they wanted to know what it felt like. Now, I'm tall, I'm like 5'10", and I have a big red hair, so you could see me floating over the cubicles, uh, you know, in the office space. Uh, I wasn't really surprised by the rumor, 
as much as um, I was more taken back that they, the men felt so open to talk about it, like openly talking about it with everybody, right? Interesting enough, they didn't even know my name, hmm. uh, let alone um, who I was. So I felt uh, uncomfortable. I was always a little uncomfortable in that space, but I think the rumor, not even a rumor, because the rumors mean there's a possibility it wasn't true. It was true. So this kind of discussion that they were having about me um, was so open, knowing that they've never really spoken to me directly. Uh Um, And so I set up two cameras in the middle of the office, and I asked each man to participate in an art project. So I brought my camera to work, and I told them that I wanted them to touch my hair. Uh, surprisingly, no one said no, you know, <laughs> everybody wanted to participate and, uh, and they touched it and I was like, you know, I want you to touch it harder and they touched it harder. I was like, I want you to pull it and they pulled it, you know? And, uh, and then I came back a week later and, uh, and I was like, well, you know, how was it? How did you like it? And you can hear it in their voices that these men are totally uncomfortable, <laughs> like, you know, this experience that they had. But for me, Um, It was the idea of making the comfortable uncomfortable. You know, as a woman of color in that space, I was uncomfortable every day. And so what happens when I give you something that you desire, something that you really wanted, and then I ask you to talk about it? How was it? And for many of those men, um, it's one thing to experience a fantasy. It's another thing to have to talk about that fantasy out loud. On camera. To the person on camera. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so um, they were uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, um, but I wanted them to be, and they were. And so afterwards, um, we talked about the experiences of being objectified in that space and, uh, and what it feels like. And so for many of the men, um, they became more empathetic, you know, and understanding in a way that maybe they weren't before. Uh, I'm a strong believer that when you make something together, like art, it has a possibility to bring you together in a way that you never imagined. And so for many of them, having that experience and feeling even uncomfortable in that space allowed them to understand to a certain degree what it feels like to be a Black woman in that space and the inappropriateness of the conversation they were having about me. Uh-huh. So, um, so that's officing and the video of me and my, of my mouth, it's really, I'm just kind of hyping myself up cause I was clearly going to work. Right. So <laughs> I had to like get my head around the idea of what I was about to do, you know? Um, and these guys, they didn't touch my hair in some like back corner. We did it in the middle of the office, like smack dab in the middle where everybody walks through, you know, like it wasn't like a hidden space. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was just me in the beginning uh, preparing. And it's on my website, too, if people want to know, like, what the hell I'm talking about, you know. Uh, you can see it on the website. But, uh, yeah, so, that's office so, so many questions, right? So many questions. So, <laughs> <laughs> Do we have time for so many questions? Oh, I, <laughs> I mean, okay, so, how, okay, which question I'll ask first. Um, how did you approach the white men and, and and say like, Hey, I heard you were talking about me. Like I'm going to do this video. Like <laughs> how, how did you get them enrolled and to, to participate in this project? I just asked them to participate. I mean, it was really as simple as, I mean, most of them knew I was in grad school for art, right? So they may not have known my name or anything, but they knew I was a student. 
I was fulfilling a student position, my supervisor at least knew that I was in grad school for art, right? Mm-hmm. Even if the men didn't know for sure. And um, I literally just said, hey, you know, I'm doing this project for my grad program, and I'd like to know if you want to participate. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure, you know, what's your project? And I was like, well, you know, for this project, you um, will touch my hair. And uh, surprisingly, no one said no. (laughs) I wish you you had a camera on them when you told them what the project was. I want to see their their reaction. Well, you know, I actually got videotaped a lot, a whole lot of it. Like, I videotaped them touching my hair. I mean, I videotaped everything. Um, In the end, when I did office scene, you know, um, I I realized that their identity was not important to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it just wasn't in making the work and that um, not showing their faces forced the viewer in many ways to create their own, use their own imagination in terms of what happened and, uh, and what these men look like. Right. So in the video, all you see is this kind of long row of cubicles and you're forced to kind of hear the men's voices as they talk. Right. But um, it was intentional to do that because so much, um, so much is about these kind of like the, the, these visual face of these men. But I realized that, you know, for me, I didn't necessarily need my audience to see their faces like that wasn't important. But to hear their voices and hear them kind of this, this kind of uncomfortable, you can kind of hear the discomfort in their voice. To me, that was the most powerful thing. Um, and their identity as far as their, their kind of like portrait wasn't um wasn't necessary in kind of achieving the goal of that video yeah i think it was i think it was genius what's up family if you're enjoying this episode do us a solid by leaving us a five-star rating or reviewing the show on apple podcast spotify or google play we appreciate the support so on that note we're gonna get back into the show peace Is it safe to say that you objectified yourself in the upfront in order to set up the experiment? I was already an object. (laughs) I don't, I couldn't say, I wouldn't say I objectified myself. Right. Um, I feel for many women of color, black women in general, um, you know, these corporate spaces are designed or not designed for us. Right. Like we were never there at the beginning and said, this is what professional looks like. And this is what black women, you know, like we were never there at the beginning. We're not at the table when these conversations, you know, took place. So I think as soon as I walked into that space, I was already an object. Right. An object. uh, And we can base it on, I mean, even the kind of the stereotypes of black women. Right. So this kind of hypersexual vixen. Right. Like I was already an object of lust before I even uh, said a word to many of these men, okay? So I think that just goes back to kind of, we can, you know, that goes back even further. We talk about uh, the objectification of the, of the female body, but the black female body in particular. So, so I was never, the space was never designed for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, you know, that, that started as soon as I went to my interview. <laughs> okay. You know, so that's, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I was never, like I said, the rumor was not a surprise for me. Like I, I, you, as a woman, you know how men look at you anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. 
like that was always present and there. Um, And so I think doing the video just uh, emphasized that even more, right? Um, There was a certain emphasis that was put on it. Mm -hmm. So what I did in making this video is I, um, I took that conversation further. And, and, and included myself in a way in the dialogue. So before the conversation didn't include me, it included me in the kind of like, I guess the kind of object way, right? But what happens when I become more intentional, like I, I become the kind of actor. Um, that's why in the beginning I say I'm on my way. Um, it's always a performance, right? Mm. I perform for them and I make them perform for me, you know? So, so many ways becoming this kind of actress um with these characters in a way if that makes any sense yeah and and i get that from i get that in a personal from a personal experience like as as, hearing you speak as a black woman as soon as you walk into a space you're automatically objectified and i think from the artistic standpoint you know choosing to open up this project focus on your lips and the words that that can have a a sexual undertone to them, but then when you listen closer, you, you're talking about a real experience being in the office, and you realize that you're not talking about sex, you're not being provocative, you're talking about something that is real. And I think what is interesting about the way you set it up is that you don't show your face, and you don't show your hair, and you don't show these white men engaging with you and your hair. So a lot is left to the imagination. But when you look at the, when you focus just on the row of cubicles, you realize that what you're talking about and the experience that you are sharing with these white men is something that should not be happening in in an office space. Like these conversations, these rumors that are going around about you should not be happening in that space. But it's sort of like you're letting us in to this uncomfortable dialogue that you're having with these with these men, it's just it, it, it sparked a lot of um, a lot of different emotions, you know, and and just me being a man myself, like having to question certain things that I may have thought about in the workspace that are like, oh, maybe that's not appropriate, you know. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, I mean, we're, we're there eight hours a day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, around more, we spend more time with our coworkers than we do sometimes at home. Right. And so, of course, people's minds wander. Um, You know, I think that, like I said, for for black women in particular, though, I think that the the level of microaggressions and um, and um, discrimination is felt is 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 greater Um, because not only are you a woman, but you're also black. And so I tell people if, you know, we talk about this idea of professionalism, but if you don't even see me as a professional, right, if you don't see me as human, if I'm just an object, then how are you going to see me as a colleague, right? How are you going to respect me on that level? And so if you don't respect me on the basic human level, then it would be very hard for you to see me um, as a professional or as a, and respect me in that way. And so the fact that these men could have this conversation about me meant that they didn't respect me even on a human level, okay? I was just an object in that space. 
an object of 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 desire because they were not you know you talk about asking to touch someone's hair well your essence touched me right mm-hmm. <laughs> like, my hair is connected to my body you know what i'm saying so uh and and so openly and honest you know uh openly in terms of uh, with, you know with each other you know and they had and they shared this sentiment with my white female co-worker you know my supervisor was a white woman and they shared it with her and she brought it to me. Oh wow. Yeah. Have have you heard from your coworkers who participated in this project? Like have <laughs> have they seen the the finished version or did you just have a conversation after that experiment? Um, you know, some of them have, you know, um and they you know they support the work, right? Like they um like I said, I think having after after experienced this project, they had a whole nother perspective, you know, and I was very clear about what my intent was in making the work and why it was important. And so for many of them over these years, I'll say over, because the performance review is 10 years worth of work. Um, over these 10 years, um, these men have supported the work. They've shared it. Many have bought the book, you know? So um, yeah, yeah. They, they definitely walked away with it from it with a different, a different um, perspective for sure. Yeah. That's dope that um, these, these, white men that participated in that project have continued to support the work. I think as an artist, you know, we never know how our work is going to be received, especially when we are involving other people. And to see that the people that you're involved, especially when it's something that could be controversial, um, Mm -hmm. that they are supported and that they are actually moved or educated by the project. I think Mm -hmm. that's, um, that's a win right there. So congratulations on that. And yeah, for and for being courageous enough to to do this at your office, like in the middle of the office. That is just <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Uh, so you you know, um you have a lot of provocative work. You know, um another project that um I thought was really interesting was um, the Am I What You're Looking For project, right? Can you tell us, uh, describe that project a little bit? And it seems like, you know, before you jump into it, it feels like these projects all have, all come from from like a similar, they all cut from like a similar cloth, you know, like, you know, focusing on the experiences of black women in spaces that are predominantly white. You know, um, so I like the fact that there's this connecting thread there. But um, yeah, I, w- I would love for you to just talk about this project a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the thing about, um, you know, I, I, with this book coming out, Performance Review, it feels like I'm dropping my first album, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like my first EP, you know, like, you know, this is like the work you've been working on since like high school, you know, yep, in, your mom, in your mom's basement, right? Like, yeah, exactly. I'm gonna buy you a house, ma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Like it feels, it feels so much like that. Um, and and my as a lover of music in general, um, I just think about as artists, we make these works that have, you know, this is ten years in the making, right? It's like your first album that you've put all this time into. It's a sophomore album you should be concerned about, you know? yeah, because that's usually the one that turns around quick. But for me, this, you know, this book feels like um, my first album. And so, like, if we compare this to, like, I don't know, like, let's say a Kanye college dropout, right, where every track talks about different aspects, and I'm talking about Kanye, Kanye, right, this for the college dropout, but, like, 
every track is a reflection of different aspects of what you go through in college in terms of whether you should be there or not. For me, um, performance review um, is kind of like the day in the life of a black woman, right? Mm -hmm. So we start with mock interview is the first chapter of the book, which is the interview. And then you get into Am I What You're Looking For, which is really the idea of preparing for the interview, right? Or preparing to, I, I'm so sorry, starting with Am I What You're Looking For yeah. when you're, and then going into mock interview. But Am I What You're Looking For is really that pre pre preparation for the interview, right? Like, how am I going to look? What am I going to wear? Um, you know, am I going to say the right things? Is my resume together? All the things that most people think about when they go to an interview, but I find that black women in particular, we have a few more thoughts, you know, yeah. um, in terms of how we look, because so much of that um, plays a major role in whether or not we get employed. Um, and sometimes even starts before that. So for instance, um, there are young women who are in that series who had to change their name yep. because um, their, their name on their resume, they were getting no callbacks, right? So then they had to change their name on the resume just to get an interview. So I feel like there's even more pressure when you go to the interview and how you present yourself. And so Emma, what you're looking for is really um, talking about the experiences of black women, young black women who are transitioning from the academic world into their corporate setting um, and, and thinking about that transition. Um, I photographed these women in the home they grew up in. So I was like, you know, tell your mama we moving the couch out the way, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and uh, and so and it was mostly North Carolina. So I was all over my state from like the coast all the way to little mountain towns I've never heard of, you know, and uh, I brought a backdrop with me, um, which is the office. I, wa I worked at at Yale, so that same office where I was literally the only black person. And I put this back, this like, it's like six by eight foot backdrop in their house, right? And I said, you know, I want you to wear whatever you deem professional. I didn't dictate their clothing, so they put on whatever they deem professional. And they stood in front of this backdrop, and I said, I want you to pretend you're the only woman. You're the only Black person in this space. How would you feel? And at that moment, um, you know, the kind of the shoot began. And, uh, you know, it was really interesting, especially photographing them. And the reason I chose their parents' home is because, A, I wanted you to see the foundation, where they came from, right? That was important. But more importantly, I wanted them to be comfortable. These women aren't models, right? So, so I wanted to photograph them in the place that gave them the most comfort. And for many of them, it was their home, their childhood home. So, um, so that was really important for me to be at home with them. And I, and I had a chance to meet their folks, you know. Um, they were there usually watching this kind of photo shoot taking place. And there was something really powerful because you have to think about it. Most parents, I mean, you're a parent, I'm a parent. We want to protect our children. And so we're guiding them as best as we can so they don't experience or endure the type of discrimination or prejudice or whatever that we endured. And so we give them whatever guidance that we think is going to be appropriate in order for them to excel in their careers. And, uh, and so it was just something powerful about having their parents present while I was taking these photographs and talking about what it means to be the only black person at your job, the only woman at your job. Yeah. And for those who are not familiar with the project, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it right now and, and, you know, Andy mentioned that there's a, there's a backdrop of a cubicle, you know, behind these women 
which is in their homes. So you get you get the you get the office setting in with with in the backdrop, but then you have like all of these personal elements of the home, like a lamp and a and family portrait and a grandfather clock and a rug. And some of the women choose to sit down on a couch. So you have like this really ornate couch in front of this backdrop of a, a cold office cubicle. And it's just adding so much layer and depth to the image. Plus you have these women who are dressed the way that they would, I guess, go to work or go to the interview, right? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so many layers and personal um, personal choice in how they present themselves. And I'm sure... I mean, was there um, an opportunity for them to to decide what parts of the home they wanted to be included in the photo as well? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty collaborative. I, um, I mean, most of the time when I, you know, the beautiful thing about and the challenging thing about photographing someone in their house is that I've never been there before, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, I went to some homes that were huge, right? They had all this space. And then I had other homes where, you know, we didn't have as much space, right? And so for me as a photographer, especially kind of creating these portraits, a lot of it, I had to choose, well, what's going to give us the best lighting? What's going to give us the best, you know, um, presentation? I know these women wanted to look good, you know? And so how do I do that going to these spaces I've never been? And like I said, some places there was all these windows and then other homes, there may have not been a single window, may have been one or two windows, right? Um, Where, and we may not have had as much space. So that was a kind of um, interesting kind of challenging aspect of that project is that I, you know, I was going to many of these spaces for the first time and, um, and setting it up and making sure that there was a kind of um, similarity um, because it's a body of work, right, in terms of the placement and uh, and the way in which things were positioned, and uh, which was a beautiful challenge to have, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, uh, but a lot of the kind of frames and things, you know, was collaborative. Like I asked someone, well, what's important, right? So we added certain elements to the portrait in order to make sure that we uh, clearly showed um, the things that they were proud of the most. Um, yeah, but as a, you know, as a photographer, I guess, you know, you get kind of the last word in, uh, in what is included or what you feel will really add to the photograph. So how much of yourself were you inserting into this, into this particular project? In terms of just well, my own personal experiences? Yeah, I guess your own personal experiences, um, being able to relate to these young women, um, you know, sometimes we, whether we're conscious of it or not, we 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 act like we are when it's a project that is really personal. We may yeah. we may choose to pr- approach it in a way where we were that person, you know, or oh, we yeah. put our own personal experience into the project, into every every shoot. Like, was that present in this project, or was that kind of separate? Yeah. I, it's present in every project I do. Everything, every, every, you know, Roy de Garava says, you should be able to look at me and see my work and you should be able to look at my work and see me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I would say every project that I do, whether it's an assignment, uh, like I, you know, I just recently shot, um, uh, Reverend Barber, Reverend William Barber for Time Magazine, um, to kind of the, you know, my own personal work. And uh, every, I guess, every project that I do becomes a kind of reflection of my own ideas and my own truths. 
um, you know, uh, interesting enough, and I don't think I've even told anybody this, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. And so I actually pray before I do um, any project. Mm. And I just pray that God gives me the strength to follow his vision or whatever path he's made for me. So every, every work, I just pray that, you know, the ultimate artist um, gives me the strength to follow whatever path has already been made for me in many ways. Um, and so, so, so I, I pray about it and I let it go and I do it. You know? <laughs> and so I, you know, I guess I'm in, I'm in all the work that I do. Um, many of these women were my students, you know, at Winston-Salem state and they confided in me, their own personal fears and frustrations. You know, I would talk to them and they say, you know, professor Bill, I went to this interview and they asked me, you know, do I have any children? I wow. went to this interview and they asked me, you know, you seem so, you speak so well. Can you tell me a little bit more about your education? Or I went to this interview and they said, is this the name I always go by? You know? And so um, I found that my students were going through the same thing that my mother went through, that my grandmother went through, that I went through. And so, and, and like I said, I deal with pain, sometimes anger and frustration through art. And so I said, you know what? Let's make some work together. You know, like, let's, 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 let's make some photographs together. And hopefully we can inspire others who are going through the same thing. And so my students and I uh, collaborated. And so, like I said, some of the women, most of them were my students. Some of them were, you know, friends or colleagues who found out about the project and said, oh, you know, I would love to do this. Um, and uh, so there's 31 in all. Uh, it was funded through the Magnum Foundation and uh, they funded the first 15 um, and then the other 15 uh, I had done earlier. Uh, so I guess they funded the last 15, but they funded most of the work. And, uh, and we were able to create something greater than ourselves in many ways. Beautiful. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. How, do, yeah. how do the young women feel seeing themselves in print? Like these are pretty huge prints, 28 by 40, 30 by 40. But then also seeing themselves published in a book. Oh, I mean, it's been, uh, you know, I cried, I cried the other day because um, now the books are actually released. So they came, you know, everybody's receiving their books and, mm -hmm. you know, and if you're not, so like you said, most of the prints are 30 by 40. So they're printed very, fairly large. And if you don't go to a museum, you're probably not going to see them. You know? yeah. <laughs> and so there's something really beautiful about the book that allows people who may have not gone to the museum an opportunity to see their, their, you know, see their likeness or be able to kind of understand the work and the text that goes along with it. And I said I cried the other day because um, one of the women I photographed sent me a video of her mother. And she's like looking at this book and she like, like she looks at it. I'm actually getting emotional talking about it, but she looks at this book and she holds it to her chest real tight, you know? And she's like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was something about this mom seeing this book and holding it close to her chest so tight that just felt so real mm -hmm. in like an honest kind of way. And it was just like, oh, you know? <laughs> and so it's been a lot of that, man, you know? <laughs> like a lot of people just saying, like, you know, like, and even the, um, the uh, Martinique is on the cover of the book. Her mom received her book and she's like, oh my gosh, India, like, did you know? Like, did you know? that this work was going to, like, did you know this was going to happen when you made this? 
And I was just like, no. <laughs> like, absolutely not. I mean, you know, I had an idea. But, you know, like I said, you pray about it and you let it go, yep. right? And usually, usually, more than likely, it comes out so much better than you imagined, especially if you're open to the possibilities of whatever. I think, you know, sometimes it just has to be that. Like, you have no idea what the hell you're doing, right? But you're like, you know what? I'm just excited about the possibilities of whatever happens. Um, and I just pray that it's better than what I think it's going to be. And so it's just kind of like that. So a lot of, you know, people have called me saying they read the book and they started crying or mm. a lot of women have read the book and, you know, saw the photographs and just, they just, you know, so I've gotten a lot of, um, a lot of good vibes, you know, coming this way, uh, which just makes everything worthwhile. You know, as a photographer artist, we make this work and we have no idea how it's going to be received, but we just know it needs to be in the world. And in many ways, we're unapologetic about that. Like, we just do it because it needs to be there, right? But, um, you know, but that, 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 kind of, that kind of feedback that you receive when it touches people's hearts in that kind of way um, is invaluable. It's just, it's just, yeah, it changes everything. Well, you know, you mentioned that you have the spiritual connection, right? So you you focus on the why, right? If your your why has to be really strong, the why are you doing this work? Why does it matter to you, right? Why do you yeah. why does it have to come through your hands, right? And then let the most high figure out the how. You oh know? yes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Mark Twain, quoting Mark Twain, <laughs> Mark Twain of all people said the two most important days in your life are the day you were born. Mm -hmm. And the day you figure out why you were born, yep, you know, and yep. uh, is that's it, right? Like, yeah. So you made you made a lot of this work when you were at Yale, a grad student in Yale, right? Um, I made the beginning of it. A lot of it made. I was uh, most of it was made after Yale. Yeah. After Yale, okay. Yeah. All right. So, it, but was it like a product of the education that you received in in the grad program? I mean, you know, the thing, interesting thing about Yale and, and the, one of the reasons why it's one of the best programs in the nation is because of the individuals you get an opportunity to meet, right? And when I say meet, meaning have an opportunity to critique your work. It's like I play basketball, right? And uh, other than my hip-hop analogies, I do use my basketball analogies as well. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine if you get a coach that's a good coach, but also a good player, right? So they were like a really good player and they became a good coach. You have like the best of both worlds, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And so I think the thing at Yale is that I had a lot of good players who were, who became very good coaches, uh, you know? And not, and so then they, they brought in good players who were also good coaches, right? Okay. And, uh, and so, you know, the critiques I had um, during that program were life-changing. I mean, I think about, you know, um, LaToya Ruby Frazier, who, you know, oh, when, when she critiqued, oh yeah, when she critiqued my work, she said, you know, India, the history of black women in photography is still being written right now. And so as you make your work, you need to figure out where you're going to be in that history. Like, where do you want to be? And, and she was right. You know, like this history is being is still being written. And so for me, it was like, what am I adding to the gallery walls? You know, um, as as um, as Mark Bradford, who's an amazing painter, 
He was like, India, do you want to be chinky or do you want to be Nigelmatic? <laughs> oh, man. Right, right, right there. Right there, you know. <laughs> like I wanna, I wanna, you know. I do. I mean, I much love to Chingy, but um. Yeah, it's not. not a, it's not. A, it's not an yeah. Illmatic. Like it's not an Illmatic. Yeah. I think even Chingy knows that. You know yeah, yeah. He be fooling himself. <laughs> you know, so like I wanna be Nas Illmatic, straight up. So uh, yeah, yeah. That I think that experience being with those, you know, you have to under, also understand that you are in the company of some of the best artists. Like in the program itself, there are people who are coming from all over the world, you know, from Zimbabwe and and Iran and you know, um, you know, Seoul, Korea. You you are amongst some of the best artists in the world, and just in outside of just your professors, the people you interact with on a daily basis, their minds, you know, Mark Gibson, Mario Moore, um, Kenya Robinson, you know, Jordan Castile. Um, Yaya, you know, even School of Drama, Yaya Mati, who's, who's uh, you know, um, doing the damn thing, right? Like, you know, the School of Art is right next to the School of Drama. And so you have all these amazing artists in one space um, who are all trying to figure out our voice, right? Um, I think that in itself is so powerful. Wow, yeah, I mean, Yale should draw in some of the biggest names in the world. Oh, yeah. Just off the oh, name yeah. alone, right? So Yeah. So you put out your first book. This is your first book, right? Um performance. Yeah, this review? is my first book. Yeah. So, my first my first album, you know what I'm saying? There it is. <laughs> the day de- the debut album. Um The debut album, straight up. <laughs> so how do you how do you follow that up? Right? Like uh-huh. you know, ten years in the making. I know you didn't set out for this to be a a book project, but it is a book and now people can flip through the pages of it. So you're immortalized and you immortalize these these women. You know, um how do you follow that up? What's next for you? Uh um, you know, uh, this time we, you know, I was talking, actually I did an interview before <laughs> before we talked. So just doing an interview today, but uh um you know this time this pandemic has I've been home I guess for a year almost a year now you know um, and uh, and for for many people um, it's been an emotional roller coaster um, for me specifically I've been on that roller coaster um, every day but it's given me an opportunity as well to think about new projects so so much of my work comes in the research and the writing and the brainstorming. You know, like these ideas don't just come kind of like right away. And so many of them, all of them, to be exact, are based on my own experiences. It's hard for me to make work about things I've never experienced, you know. Um, And even when I do an assignment, I have to try to figure out uh, where my own personal truths or my own um, ideas kind of fit into the assignment, right? So I can bring so I can bring myself to that that project as well but um this uh i guess you know so this time has allowed me to just really brainstorm right and think about what i want to do next in terms of projects to do the research i really want and uh and to kind of think about it and i need that time 
um, like I said, you know, these ideas, it's like a, it's like a painting, you know, you have to kind of do some studies. If you're a sculptor, you make a little maquette, you know, <laughs> but you try to figure out how you're going to form it and knowing that it's never, you know, it, you, you know the vision isn't totally clear, but you have an idea generally of what, of what you want to do. So, um, so yeah, yeah, this time has really given me a chance to, to, uh, to do that. So you just, you have a lot of ideas incubating right now. 100%. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited to, um, to flush those out. I mean, that's such a, that's such a, a great place to be. Um, because me speaking personally is either I don't give, I don't create enough time or create the space to sit down and, and incubate ideas. But when I do find myself in that space where I'm able to just like have a, a clean slate and like no, no distractions, like a fresh pot of coffee, right? It's some music mm -hmm. going and I'm able to just like brainstorm ideas. Like that's a great place to be because you, you see all the possibilities that are there. Mm -hmm. And then it's just a matter of time before you push that button and say, all right, today we go, boom. And hit the ground yeah. running. Yeah. This is India Beale, and you are tuned in to the phenomenal Black Shutter Podcast. I want to give a big shout out to everyone who tuned into this episode. Thank you for listening. The Black Shutter Podcast is hosted by me, Idris Talib Solomon. To subscribe to the Black Shutter Podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. When you get there, show us some love by dropping a five star rating or leaving a review. This will help with our rankings, which essentially helps more black photographers get exposure. Make sure to check us out online at blackshutterpodcast.com to read the show notes, learn more about our guests, and check out some of their work. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Peace. Until next time.